The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through mission, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. The scripture reading for this morning is from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 16 through chapter 4, verse 3. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They will have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts. For all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward, and the spirit of beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who were already dead, more fortunate than the living, who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been, and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Good morning, Restoration Southside. I look forward to a day when we can gather together very soon. But until then, we'll continue this work of worshiping online together. As you've heard in the verses that were just read, it is a difficult text, but one that is so very timely for us as God's people and us as a nation. So I hope and pray that you will be as challenged as I have been studying this text. Before we dive in, there's a ministry called the Jude 3 Project. It's an apologetics organization that's dedicated to help black Christians community know what they believe and why. And as I wrestled with their wonderful material this week, so much of it has influenced my thinking. So if you want to look that up later, that's the Jude 3 Project. You'll certainly hear quotes from it in our text. Thank you for your trust, and I ask that you would join me in asking God to bless our study of this important and difficult topic. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I know that my heart has been prejudiced, ugly, superior, racist. I know that I've taken for granted things that were given me as if I've earned them and condescended towards those who have been not given the same privileges that I've been given. Would you, by your Holy Spirit, graciously and kindly work powerfully on your people? We need your help. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Many of you may have heard the story or even seen the movie, 12 Years a Slave. The true life story of Solomon Northup born in July 10th, 1807. He's an American farmer and laborer 
and musician. And he was a free man who was kidnapped and sold into slavery. And in his memoir, he details his story, 12 years a slave. It's right before the Civil War in the South. And there's this scene into the years of his slavery in Louisiana where he is being punished for some trumped-up charges. And so he's grabbed aggressively and strung up to be lynched on a tree. But instead of killing him because they need his strength and leadership, they leave him just enough room in the rope to choke there all day. He's literally pushing up with his toes in the mud all day as punishment. The scene is detailed in the movie, 12 Years a Slave. It was said this, Anita Bush said this about the scene. The aim of this is that you're left with awkwardness watching him for more than two and a half minutes, single shot, hanging there. You're left with this awkwardness and deeply uncomfortable viewing of that wide shot of him hanging. There's people working around him in the background. There's children playing in the background, and he's just hanging there. And he's held to the point where there's no friendly cut. There's no relief. We signal by holding the time that we do. It's almost like fueling the audience's audience's subconscious that they're watching something real. There's no safety net. There's an element in the scene of enduring something real, she says. You almost get the audience to a point where they stand up and make a scene, you know. The director, Steve McQueen, says that he was trying to get the audience to not look away. Don't look away. This free man who was enslaved later in his life and is being punished unjustly and he's being hung but to the point where he can still breathe he can still make it he's being tortured essentially and the director and really Solomon Northup wanted us to see don't look away don't look away from the injustice stay with the scene don't look away That is the message that Solomon is communicating to us here in Ecclesiastes 3, in the beginning of Ecclesiastes 4. He's saying, yes, there is ugly injustice, horrible injustices of all kind, but don't you dare look away, Christian. Don't look away. We all struggle to have hope in times like these times, but because of Jesus, we must trust the God of justice. First of all, let's talk through the injustice that is rampant under the sun. Listen with me and read along as we look at verses 16 through 21. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. 
Did you hear that? In the place of righteousness, there is instead wickedness. In the place of justice, there is instead wickedness. He's saying if you live in a world like this, you cannot deny if you keep your eyes open that seemingly injustice prevails. Things are so bad. And Solomon knew it. He goes on in verses 1-3. through He says, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors was power. And there was no one to comfort them. And I thought that dead who are already dead are more fortunate than those who are living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. What Solomon is saying is that things are so broken, so unjust, the oppressors have more and more power. And no one is left to comfort the oppressed. Solomon goes so far to say it's better if you've experienced these things and are dead than you're currently experiencing them. It's even better if you were never born and not experienced them at all. He's saying things are so bad, it'd be better to be dead. That is certainly where we see the nature of our world today. It's better to be dead or to have never been born into a world like this where justice is replaced with wickedness, where the oppressed are not comforted. We see injustice all over the world. We see it in racism. We see it in abortion. We see it in what we did to the Native Americans hundreds of years ago and what we do now. We see it in how women are treated and abused. We see it in the treatment of African Americans, treatment of those who are different than us. Injustice is rampant under the sun. There's this powerful scene in the movie To Kill a Mockingbird. It's a movie version of Harper Lee's great novel. The whole novel we're trying to watch as Atticus Finch tries to defend this man, Tom Robinson, who's been falsely accused of raping a white woman. And Atticus Finch, this noble character, continues to try and defend him Throughout the movie, and there's some sense, if you're unfamiliar with the story, that the right guy is doing the right thing, and it's going to pay off. And that his client, this wonderful man, Tom Robinson, is not going to be charged with this crime. That the good shall prevail. In the closing scenes of the movie, after Atticus Finch has put on the best possible defense, the jury comes forward and says that Tom Robinson is guilty. And there's just this empty, dead space in the air. And you see the righteous condemned as wicked. And it reminds us that even when we fight the good fight, even when we're trying to do right by someone, wickedness often prevails. And we know that. We know that with the unborn We know that with the treatment of Native Americans. We know that with Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, Philando Castile, Rashad Brooks, Eric Garner, Trayvon Martin, 
Tamir Rice, Michael Brown, Sandra Bland, and that's just off the top of our heads this morning. It's not right. Oppressors take it out on the oppressed and there is no one to comfort the oppressed. Ecclesiastes looks square in the face of our hearts and says, don't you dare look away. If you are going to honestly and lovingly interact with the world that we live in under the sun, don't you dare look away. I'm scared when I open my phone in the morning for what the next news is going to be. Tempted to stop watching, stop engaging, because it's easier just to not look. And Ecclesiastes does not give Christians that ability to, to look away. It says you stare straight at it. You acknowledge the systemic broken injustices of this world where poor kids get poorer and hungrier kids get hungrier. Uneducated people have even worse schools. And he says, this is how it is. Behold the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. And the side of their oppressors was power. It'd take you 10 minutes to look at our world and say, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Look and don't look away at the injustice that is rampant under the sun. Malcolm Gladwell says it this way in his book, Talking with Strangers. Something is very wrong with the tools and the strategies we use to make sense of people we don't know. And because we don't know how to talk to strangers, we are inviting conflict and misunderstanding in ways that have a profound effect on our lives and our world. So you see clear as I do, the injustice that is rampant under the sun. But how should we respond? How should we respond as Christians entrusting ourselves to the Holy Spirit and Christ's kingdom? How should we respond? Look in verse 22. So I saw that there is nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? And then look in verse 4. Then I saw that all the toil and skill and work come from a man's envy and of his neighbor. This is also vanity, a striving after the wind. What he's saying is that all of this injustice, and how should we respond? He's saying we have to pick up and keep moving. We have to work for the sake of others. Rejoice in our work, for that is our lot. And that even all our skill and envy, it's vanity. It's a chasing after the wind. So how are we as Christians supposed to respond during times like this? First thing we need to do is to listen. To listen. You can't move forward unless you start listening. 
as I mentioned from the podcast, the Jude 3 Project. There's Dr. Marvin, and he says this. He's quoting White Fragility by Robin DeAngelo. And she's saying how difficult it is to get white people to engage in the discussion. And one of the reasons is that sense of individualism. Sort of, I've gotten where I am without help from anyone else. I've gotten where I am without help with anyone else. And Dr. J says this later in the podcast, the idea that you're a self-made person, white privilege means that you know everything. There's a whole host of things that you don't have to worry about, a whole host of burdens that you don't carry because of the, the color of your skin. He says this, there's a pride that comes with thinking that you're a self-made person. Everything you've got, you earned, and there was no corporate aspect to that dimension. And that recognizing that in an African-American community, there's a whole different dynamic there. We cannot help to bring healing unless we start listening, listening to our African-American, our black brothers and sisters. We have to listen. The white privilege and the white fragility is real. And if we don't take that seriously now, we are contributing to a problem. We must respond by listening. We must respond with humility. It's hard to be told that your story is where it is because it was provided for on the backs of others in a broken system. It's hard to be told that, but we need to have the humility to be told that. We need to. We need to hear it. And we need to lament. We need to be sorrowful over the state of our world and the state of ourselves. We need to lament. Jesus says it this way in the New Testament, Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Here's what Jesus says. You have taken spirituality and you have simplified it and reduced it to these simple, manageable practical spiritual practices that you do. And then you feel good about it. Oh, I'm giving, I feel good about that. Oh, I'm fighting my lust, I feel good about that. Oh, I'm making progress with my patience with my kids, and I feel good about that. And he's saying you're doing these things that are small, but neglecting the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And friends, we in the Reformed community are just as guilty as anyone about this. We have turned following Christ into sin management instead of looking for justice and mercy and faithfulness. The number one thing you think about your faith, and I know I think about my faith, is how am I doing in my sin count with God? Neglecting justice and mercy, and faithfulness. 
Jesus is saying, you've made religion about you, Pharisees, and really, we've made it about us, Christians. Following Christ means speaking up for others, not using religion to pat ourselves on the back. So we have to lament. Lament the things that we have done and thought and said and felt wrong and lament the system, lament the history, and we have to repent of it. Repent of it. We can't look back on it and wish it away. We can't look back on it and wish it had been different, hoped it had been different. We can't do revisionist history and act as if, well, maybe there are some ugly parts in there, but for the most part, it's not that bad. The pastor in this this podcast that I've told you about, professor, says you have to acknowledge, and this is a white professor, you have to acknowledge that this country was based on crime. Why would we think that something else positive would come out of that? Based on crime, taking advantage of others, slavery, racism, murder, rape. We have to lament and we have to repent. I want to give you a tiny example here, and I want to address at the outset that it's a flawed example, okay? It's just an analogy that'll help you to kind of take a step forward in some of this conversation. It's a simple, but it's a flawed analogy. But we had a seminary guest professor many years ago. This is a white guy, and he's married to this wonderful black woman. And he was describing to the seminarians what it felt like as his wife was trying to communicate to him about how he didn't even understand fully about his privilege. He didn't even understand about how much his life had been advantaged over hers. So she used this analogy. That was a baseball game, whites versus blacks. Of course, the whites and the blacks are both called and gifted and qualified to play baseball. Both have opportunities and gifts in this pretend scenario. But for eight and a half innings, the whites cheat like crazy. They're corking bats. They're using tar. They've paid off the umpires who are also white. They're cheating for eight and a half innings. And finally, it comes to the bottom of the ninth. when they're up 100 to zero. And they finally say, okay, okay, you're right. Well, from here on out, we'll stop cheating. No more cork bats. No more tar on the ball. No more paid off umpires. From here on out, we will play perfectly fair. That really struck me. Because it was articulating my sinful, prejudiced, limited view of race. Oh, I didn't, I wasn't there way back then. I didn't do those things. And the rules are pretty good now. Not acknowledging my white privilege and my sinful racism. To say, now we can play fair, even though the game is almost over. Now, first of all, the black players in this analogy have just as much skill. They're playing fair, though. And 
for the sake of the analogy, we still haven't made the playing field fair. We say, well, now, after eight and a half innings, we'll play fair. We still haven't made it fair. How could any part of that be viewed as fair when the score and the system led to the score being so imbalanced? It's like not only did we cheat in the game, we changed the game. It looks like baseball, but it's not because there's cheating umpires and corked bats. It looks like it. It's like we take black people's participation in the game, in this very unfair version, as tacit support. Since they're playing, it can't be that bad. As if black people will play by the broken rules, then they can't be that broken. And we take that as validation that the rules are correct. When in reality, they don't have any other choice but to play by our rules. Friends, one of the clearest way I see this is in the phrase, all lives matter. Now, is there a biblical sense in which that's true? You better believe it. We are image bearers before God Almighty. We've been knit together in the secret place. Do all lives matter? You bet it does. We're the body of Christ. But when we use that phrase as a reductionist shot at Black Lives Matter, it shows a total lack of empathy. Yes, all lives matter. But if my son someday when he has a car gets pulled over for speeding, and William is out driving and he has a car that's pulled over for speeding, who should I be more worried about? The reason that we say black lives matter is because we're saying in all lives matter, it's not yet true that black lives matter. Not to the same degree. Not to what the gospel calls us to. And it's a lack of empathy. It's a lack of empathy to hijack a phrase which has garnered support and encouragement and advancement for black people in America and to look at it and say, oh yeah, but that's, that's not the whole truth. Really, all lives matter. Yes, all lives matter. We're applying the realities that it seems as if in our world, it's practiced in reality that my life means more than a black person's does. And God is disgusted by that. It's not true. So we're supposed to wear ourselves out for the sake of others. Gibson says this about the passage. If your head hits the pillow at night full of questions about how you might help and serve someone else and how you can be a certain kind of person for them, then you will find gladness and contentment that nothing else can match. What he's saying is the point of the passage is, is that you are supposed to live your life for the sake of others. Are we as a church doing that? Wear ourselves out for the sake of others. Friends, so we listen, we humble ourselves, we lament and we repent and we wear ourselves out for the sake of others. And we persevere, we persevere. Dr. Marvin McMickle, who I've mentioned earlier in the sermon, he's a theologian and pastor. And he talks about when he was being mentored as a young black pastor. 
1972 to 1976. He even clarifies that the words of his pastor, his mentor, the pronouns could be updated. But he says this, I need you so much to be 40-year men. 40-year men, by which I meant, I don't need you to be active or outspoken or committed for a day or for a week or for months or for a year or for a decade. I need you to commit your life to this issue of the gospel and the transformation of the social order. 40-year men. Young white men need to be challenged. I see this issue finally, somewhat, a little bit. I'm beginning to understand. And I want to knock it over and keep running. I want to have it be a 40-second issue. And I need that wisdom of Dr. Marvin McMichael's mentor saying, this is a lifetime of calling. My daughter was once locked in our boys' bedroom. They actually have an old-school bolt lock on their door, and so once she was in there, she didn't understand how to get out. I said, Carson, get away from the door. I was going to get my little girl, and I kicked the door three times, and finally, not just the lock gave way, the door broke open. I felt like Mel Gibson, a lethal weapon. The point is there was a problem and I kicked hard and the problem was gone. And that's where I need to be encouraged with perseverance. It's a fight of a lifetime. And this fight's been going on before I got here and it'll be going on after I'm gone. We need 40-year men and women. We're supposed to have hope. Dr. McMichael says it this way. Even amidst all of the brokenness in our world, we are supposed to have hope. And he says it so powerfully, not because hope that things are ready to change or hope that the policies will finally be correct or hope that the world's finally listening. He says this from Lamentations 3. He says, yet this I call to mind. And therefore I have hope because of the Lord's great love. We are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I will say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. Dr. McMichael says, God is going to have the last word on these men. It's going to be the voice of the faithful, reminding people that our hope is built on nothing less. He said, I've marched, I've protested, I've gone to jail, I've petitioned, I've, on, I've done all those things only because I'm not appealing to the conscience of America but I'm acting out of the hope that comes from knowing that God will prevail and that weeping may endure for a season, but joy will come in the morning. We respond by listening and being humbled and weeping and lamenting and repenting and for working in perseverance and hope for the sake of others. But how does God respond? How does God respond about these injustices? I know you might think that because the church has been so racist that our God must be racist too, but it's not the case. The Bible is full of testimony of the fact that God is on the side of the oppressed. Riken says it this way, as we read in the Bible, we quickly discover that there's a conflict in which God does choose sides. He's not on the side of injustice, but stands against it with all of his power. 
Amos preached against people who oppressed the poor and crushed the needy. Ezekiel warned about extortion and stealing from foreigners. Zechariah listed the people who are most likely to be oppressed, widows, orphans, travelers, and the poor. It's not just words and action that bring oppression, but also legislation. And that's why Riken points out that in Isaiah it says, God's woe against those who decree iniquitous decrees. God is angry at injustice. He is angry at injustice, and he will deal with it ultimately and finally one day. Don't think that God is passive. But he promises the comfort of his presence. We see that all over the Bible. Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. Joshua 1, 9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. God is near to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. If you are crushed in spirit, my friend, God is near you in this time. You see his anger. You see the comfort offered during this oppressive time. You see him sustaining you in the present, that walking alongside you. And you also see promise of justice in the future, finally. But there are moments of justice now. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. He said, they've become a burden to me. I've wearied them. This is Isaiah 1. I'm not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. So what are they doing so wrong in Isaiah? Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless and plead the widow. My African... American brothers and sisters, to my black brothers and sisters who have been sexualized, traumatized, marginalized, for women who have been condescended towards and abused, for Native Americans who have been plunged into generational pain, don't for one second think justice isn't coming for you. It is coming for you. There will be a day when all of the wrongs done you will be made right. When all of the ways that you were overlooked, you will be rightly dignified and honored and respected. And to my majority culture, don't think for one second we can stand on the sideline and be rewarded. These are the words of Jesus himself. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And they will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick and in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, whoever did not do for one of the least of these, you didn't do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. We see the anger of God in the presence of God with the oppressed, the comforting presence as he walks alongside and sustains them. We see the promise of justice in the future. And there are moments of it, glimpses of it now. 
But mainly, how does God feel about suffering? You look at the person of Jesus Christ. Listen to this from Habakkuk. This is Habakkuk 1. O Lord, how shall I cry for help and you not hear? Or cry to you violence and you won't save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. Sound familiar? For the wicked surround the righteous, and so does justice go forth perverted. The Bible frees us up to look at God square in the face and say, where are you? And then God gives us Jesus. Remember these words at the beginning? Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. About God who knew no sin, made him to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus takes all of the injustice on himself so that we can receive his record, his righteousness, his reward. When you're tempted to think, I don't know if God cares about our situation, I want you to be reminded of this Keller quote. It's the smartest thing I've ever seen Keller do. He says this, Christianity alone among the world religions cries that God became uniquely and fully human in Jesus Christ and therefore knows firsthand despair, rejection, loneliness, poverty, bereavement, torture, and imprisonment. Listen to this. In his death, God suffers in love, identifying with the abandoned and forsaken. Why did he do it? Because the Bible says that Jesus came on a rescue mission for creation. He had to pay for our sins so that someday he can end evil and suffering without ending us. He pays for the sin, ends evil and suffering without having to end us. And then Keller says this, why does God allow evil and suffering to continue? We look at the cross of Christ and we still don't know what the answer is. I gasped when I heard him say that. We don't get it. And finally, someone just acknowledged it. We don't understand fully how the cross in a broken world makes sense. But Keller goes on, Acknowledging that we don't know, we don't know. And he says this, however, we know what the answer isn't. It can't be that he doesn't love us. It can't mean that he is indifferent or detached from our condition. God takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself. Friends, that's the comfort. Yes, the injustice around us is so real and ugly and broken. And yes, we are called to respond humbly, listening and lamenting, wailing at our sin and being sorrow and working for the sake of others and persevering in that work and hoping for better days, not because of our systems, but because of our God. But we remember that our God is angry at injustice. Our God will be with us as we bear the marks of injustice. Our God will be for us and present and a comfort to us, a very present help in trouble. 
He's not okay with injustice. In fact, he's so not okay with it that he came into the world to take our suffering seriously. Yes, this injustice is unbearable, but it is not the end of the story. Friends, let us look in hope towards the God who takes our suffering so seriously. Let's pray. By your Holy Spirit, by your grace, minister your word and pray for ongoing conversation, listening, wailing, repenting, lamenting. I pray that we would work together. I pray that we would find a deeper trust in you, not in our government, or in our movements, but in the very character of God who has come to end suffering and injustice forever. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.